0: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry.
0: Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? You know, folks, uh, I had planned to have a brand new episode come out today, but uh, technical issues got in the way. And yes, I am aware of the irony. And it's one of those irritating things where I haven't yet tracked down the actual source of the problem. So that has taken up a lot of my time today. And it means that I did not get a new episode recorded. However, I would never want to leave you without an episode of Tech Stuff. So here's one that was recorded a few years ago on August 26th, 2019. We published it. It's about Formula One racing. It's called Formula One 101. And on this episode, I had uh, the amazing guest of Scott Benjamin on the show. Missy Scott, hope you are well. And uh, yeah, I thought we could go back and listen to this so that we could go fast even while we're sitting still. Today, we are tackling a listener request. Michael Peachy asked me ages ago if I could talk about Formula One race cars, Formula One racing, what's it all about? How does that work? And I thought, you know, I'm not really a car guy. Like, I've done car topics before, but it requires an enormous amount of research on my part because uh, I, don't, I don't really know cars. So it, it's, it's like it's extra work for me. Not that I don't, you know, mind doing some extra work, but that's asking a lot. And then I thought, wait a minute, there's a dude who literally sits on the other side of the table from me at our workstations. His name is Scott Benjamin, and he's not doing anything. So I'm just going to grab him and pull him into the studio. Scott, welcome to the show.
1: Did you just say not doing anything? Okay, that's totally a (laughs) lie. Scott's doing a lot of stuff. (laughs) I'm doing some stuff over there. Yeah, now and then.
0: So Scott, first of all... Tell our listeners what you have been doing because they may not be aware of the, the shows you're working on. All right.
1: On. Well, first, thank you for having me on your show. You I really are appreciate it. Every time I'm here, I have a good time. So uh, let's keep that up, okay? How about uh, absolutely. 100% on this. Yes. And uh, I've been working on some other stuff. I, uh, I've been. Gosh, for a couple of years, I've been doing some true crime stuff.
0: Yeah, you might um, uh, you might recognize Scott's voice if you've listened to uh, Monster, for example. Yeah,
1: voice of the Zodiac. Oof, wow. Yeah, and uh, I've got my own show, which is called Insomniac. I've been doing that, and that one's kind of uh, wrapping up right around now. And I've got a couple of a uh, couple of car shows that are coming up soon, and one has already been released. The other one we're kind of holding off on, but um, it's no secret, I don't think. Uh, I yeah. mean, we are we are going to re-release car stuff. I'm going to come back on the show, uh, just me, just myself. Yeah, uh, Ben will not be with me, and I'll explain all of that at the beginning of the uh, of the, the series. Yeah, and uh, there's no big fight or anything like that. But, no, uh, no, it's just, no. Just
0: ben go- and I are always in a big fight, but you and Ben, you're you're, <laughs> you're still you're still close. No, no.
1: So yeah, we're still tight and everything. Uh, he's just got a lot going on right yes. now, it's more than more than a lot of us do. So uh, there's that, and then I also have another show called the Fast Track, and the Fast Track is a lot like car stuff. Only it's it's more focused on things that go fast, people that go fast ways that we go fast, Mm -hmm. um, just components, you know, race series, anything about speed and going quickly and how we can get there faster. And that's, that's what it's all about.
0: Awesome. So you are clearly the go-to guy if we're going to talk about Formula 1. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, guys, I was not joking when I say I'm not a car guy and I'm I'm certainly not a race car guy. I've I've never really watched racing. I mean, I'm aware of it from the the sort of the cultural touchstones. That uh, are out there, and uh, you know, I, I'm aware that there are different kinds of racing. You know, there's the Formula One, there's stock car racing. You know, there's there's NASCAR, which is sort of an offshoot of the stock car racing. But beyond that, I wouldn't have necessarily been able to differentiate them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know much about Formula One before looking back into this, apart from you know seeing it in movies and stuff. Uh, and I I remember. Joking with you, Scott this morning, I said, well, to me, the history of race car uh, driving race cars and 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 races in general kind of boil back to the day the second car rolled off the manufacturing plant and people started wondering, I wonder which of these two can go faster. It's essentially true.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really did happen that way. I mean, that's that's what it was. As, as soon as there were enough cars to get together, they, they started to race or see who could get to a certain point faster. Yeah. And a, a
0: lot of those early races, it wasn't even just about speed. It was because cars were so new. It was literally seeing which one of these can actually make that trip. There were reliability <laughs> yeah. tests, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like Will this car actually make this this trip from? It was almost always Paris to something else. Like yeah. the French were, gaga. That's French for wowza, for <laughs> for car racing. Uh, and in fact, the the history of Formula One, if you look at it, really has its roots in an earlier part of racing, the, the whole Grand Prix concept, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, turn of the century, turn of the uh, the 20th century. Yeah, and more that's than what, 100 I mean, years ago. The early, early dawn of automobiles is when we're talking about, you know, the racing beginning like you were talking about, you know, when there's just more than a few in a field and they're trying to get mm. somewhere or trying to, you know, prove their endurance by, by, you know, racing 26 miles or whatever it was. You know, it took them all day right, to right. go that far. Yeah,
0: because their, their top speed might be like 15 kilometers an hour.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and the roads and the conditions and the vehicles mm-hmm. themselves and just it, there's so many factors that go into why these races were just um, it's brutal on the person mm. that was, uh, you know, in the, in the driver's seat or in the passenger seat or mechanic's seat or however you want to put it. Right. Um, it. A lot of times, you know, it came down to what the driver could stand. Were, these are open cockpit cars and they were uh, they were really, really punishing on the person that was driving.
0: The wheels were not uh, – inflatable tire wheels because the road – first of all, those had not really been invented yet. Also, the roads certainly were not uh, in good enough shape to allow that kind of wheel to last for very
1: long. No, these are wagon trails.
0: Yeah. yeah, so you're talking about like hard rubber wheels, or sometimes like metal wheels mm-hmm. on these things. So, you know, so you can imagine if you've ever been in a bumpy <laughs> car ride, that's not even coming close to what this experience was like. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, or, yeah, the tires were not pneumatic tires, or by any means. So a lot of times they were a really, really rough ride. But you know, it, the racing did begin early, early in the night, or rather the 20th century, and by the time you get to around uh, you know the 1920s, 1930s, things mm-hmm. have gotten a lot better. I mean, yes. a lot better. We're, got, we're talking some enormous engines, maybe not the highest horsepower output, but they are strong. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're putting an aircraft engine in cars at this point. Wow. Uh, in race cars, I should say, uh, because, you know, they, they're obviously they're not a street car. They're, they're something a little bit more than that. They're, they're throwing, you know, V16 engines into cars and, you know, the, the manufacturers are starting to get into it and they're realizing that people are, you know, taking note of uh, the manufacturers that win the race are, are you know, they're, they're proving that reliability, they're mm-hmm. proving their speed, they're proving, you know, just what that they're they're backing their product. They're they're yeah. throwing it out there for everybody to see, and uh, of course that translates to sales. And, and racing has always translated to sales for for automakers, and that's exactly why they get into it. And you know, early on, you know, we're, we're here to talk about Formula One. Yeah, and uh, early on in the days that we're talking about, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, there was no Formula One.
0: Right, right. At this point. You had some – formula in this sense refers to a set of rules.
1: Yeah. Right? So
0: you would have different sets of rules for different races, but they changed all the time. In fact, Formula One rules have changed significantly since they were introduced. (laughs) They change weekly, it seems. To the point where you're like, why are you (laughs) calling it a – Formula—it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like the flavor of the week at it's this point.
1: A changing formula,
0: but exactly—it's—it's—it's it's, it's no Coke classic. Mm. But the the formulas or the the rules were usually things like they would govern how heavy your vehicle could be, mm-hmm. and then generally the capacity of the engine. And there were some stretches where even that was thrown out the window. There were the the so-called Formula Libre years Mm -hmm. where that means formula free, right? So you didn't have those restrictions. That really was around 1928 when that happened. And uh, this was also around the same time where to build these race cars was a really expensive endeavor. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into costs like modern-day costs later on because – while it was expensive back then, it was peanuts compared to what it is today. Yeah, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I, I mean, you've only shared with me a couple of figures. <laughs> I wanted to save the best for the show because I, I think you'll hear my jaw hitting the desk multiple times. But the car manufacturers started to pull out around the late 20s, early 30s, and uh, in order to focus on building out their their consumer cars cuz that's really when consumer vehicles were starting to take off and you started seeing the rise of these specialty manufacturers the Ferraris, the Bugattis, the Maseratis, and,
1: and here there's a couple of interesting things I want to point out about that about the, those those manufacturers that are stepping in because um, you know and we should say this too that you know up until this point it's been called Grand Prix racing yes Grand Prix motor racing I think is how they they actually said it and Grand Prix of course uh, means I think it means like great prize in, in French mm-hmm. right so big old
0: um, big old honking prize yeah yeah
1: that's right big trophy right that's yeah. uh, that's what you win and uh, and so you know early days of, of a this type of racing, it was called Grand Prix racing. Mm-hmm. There was no Formula One up until uh, a point that we're going to get to in just a moment here. Yeah. But manufacturers were starting to step in. That are like, um, um, like Ferrari, mm-hmm. and Ferrari is a great example, is because he really just wanted to go racing. That's yeah. all he wanted to do. He didn't yeah. want he didn't want a road car, and he had to build. A certain number of road cars at a certain point in order to fund his racing program. And yeah. that's what he did. So he started to <laughs> build a
0: car company to
1: to, to fuel his racing it, addiction. Exactly. Yeah. So Ferrari, the, the the birth of Ferrari is really because of his desire to go racing. He hmm. wanted a the, you know the best racing machine, but he had to build and sell cars to the uh, to the public mm-hmm. in order to fund that program and and it kind of became this uh I don't know what you call it the 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 way it's kind of this back and forth where you know it's like a balancing act mm-hmm. like if i if i build okay if i build 20 cars this year, I can afford to race one more season. Mm -hmm. If I build 80 cars next year, I'll be able to afford another race car and do it for two more seasons or three more seasons Mm -hmm. or whatever. And it just became this thing that grew and grew and grew. And the teams got bigger. The cars got more expensive and faster. And he was more competitive on the track. And he had to build more, more street cars, which... He didn't really enjoy it at first. He didn't want to do that. He just, just wanted the racing program. This is and fascinating. I know. And it's it's crazy, isn't it? That, like, now when you look at Ferrari, they're a fantastic road car. Of course, they've got a great racing program still. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's what the whole company is, is based on. But, you know, they do build some incredible and just incredible street machines as well. And, you know, they always were great. Uh, Just he was just more doing it, I guess, just out of his own own selfish needs, really. Yeah. You know, early on the initial days.
0: Well, and this also kind of ties in and we're talking a lot about the pre Formula One days because it's really important to understand why Formula One came around when it did. Uh, in those pre days, so in the very early years, you had sort of French domination mm-hmm. in in these in these races. Uh, France was uh, first of all, France was hosting most of the Grand Prix races, and also was fielding at least half the vehicles in most of these races mm-hmm. as well. So clearly, they were going to dominate. After that, you started to see the rise of the Italian vehicles with the Ferraris coming in and really starting to challenge that. And then following that, you started to see Germany really push hard to get into this space too with German engineering. sure. And this became not just a sports thing but a political thing because I mean, if you're paying attention, this is the same as the rise of Hitler. and Hitler was very much determined to have Germany's profile raised in all fields of engineering and science, largely as a sort of a domination play. And, you know, we also saw this in the Olympics. We saw it in all so any place where Germany was going to have a, a place on the world stage. Hitler wanted Germany to be at the very top of that. And so you saw a lot of, of pressure, a lot of state-sponsored uh, programs in Germany to try and, and boost their own performance in the, uh, uh, in the racing world. Although I should also add that even state-sponsored only covered part of the cost of developing these vehicles, because that's how expensive they were. Mm-hmm. You couldn't even have an entire country behind you and still <laughs> compete. You had to have more money than that.
1: Sure. And that's why we see teams often come and go in the series. I yeah. mean, even now, uh, a lot of teams just simply can't afford to compete. And we're talking about major, major manufacturers. They just don't see enough return on investment in, yeah. in a lot of times. and uh, Or they may have come into it with only the plan to operate in there for a few years, learn what they can, and then get out.
0: Yep. So- through all this we get to World War II mm-hmm. and of course during World War II the Grand Prix's stop I mean obviously there were more important things going on at that point yeah. but as soon as World War II was over the 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 world started to return to, to normal and even before World War II had completely ended in all theaters it it ended in Europe, they were already starting to plan the next round of Grand Prix, which would take place by 1946. They started holding these races again.
1: Ah, yes, 1946. Now, 1946 is an important year because I think that was when they held the very first official Formula One race. Mm. And the thing is it, it wasn't um, – it wasn't actually formalized until one year later, I believe, until mm-hmm. 1947. And then the, the the first official, I guess, if you want to go with like the absolute official world class, you know, race, world class right. Formula One race, uh, the World Championship race was held in 1950, and this wasn't at uh, Silverstone in uh, the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah. So uh, th- these were all sort of the the stepping stones to establishing what truly would be Formula One, which, again, uh, we're going to go more into in our our next section after we t- come back from the break. We're going to talk more about what the Formula One rules were when they were originally put in place. Uh, that would obviously change a lot. And i also have some questions for Scott because the rules indicate things like like engine volume, and I need to understand more about what that means. <laughs> And that's why I have him here. I'll do what I can. Yeah, no, I, I fortunately I know a little bit about it, so we can talk about uh, kind of what these are. But these are things that, these are terms that would pop up around around racing that, because I was not in that world, to me were just it was like Greek.
1: Completely understand. Uh, just yep. totally
0: a mystery to me. So yeah, now we finally get up to. Where you have the this organization in uh, in Europe that has formalized this set of rules. This is the FIA. yeah, yeah. and so they've they've got this set now. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering, are there other formula races? Yes, there's formula two, there's formula three, there's formula four. There's also formula E, mm-hmm. which is for uh, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the differences largely between Formula 1 and Formula 2 just on a very brief level in our next segment. But before we get into that, uh, we're going to really dive into some some engine stuff in a minute. And uh, I'm going to need to take a quick break to steel myself for this uh, experience. So when we come back, more about Formula 1. Working remotely.
2: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
0: Okay, so we get to the point where Formula One rules are set. And here's how I understand the rules to be. Based on my research and Scott, if I if I go way wrong, just you know, not to use a pun, but steer me back on track. Um, <laughs> okay. One thing one thing I didn't mention earlier was uh, uh, one of the big differences between Formula One racing and say uh, your your typical like your NASCAR races mm-hmm. is that. The circuits on Formula One involve lots of different turns left and right, right? That's sure. mm-hmm. not like a big oval like you would see in a lot of race car races. No,
1: these are road courses. Yeah. So there's elevation changes. There are uh, left and right turns, as you said. Um, it's not the high banked ovals like we're talking about in, in NASCAR or right. you know some other forms of racing. It's, right. It, this is a uh, – it's a challenging race. I mean they're all challenging, but um, this becomes a, a sport where – the person behind the wheel really does need to be an athlete, and yes. if you don't believe me, try. We talked about this off air, but uh, try going go karting mm-hmm. at an indoor track for maybe ten, fifteen minutes at a time. You're exhausted when you're done. Yeah, you'll and, ache, and that's just go karting, and, and that's <laughs> and
0: that's just for ten or fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah. the, the Formula One race, by the way, has a time limit of two hours. Yeah, uh, on a regular race, assuming no red flag conditions pop up.
1: Yeah, so, so. you know, no doubt about it, these guys are athletes.
0: Yeah. And, and you could experience uh, forces up to 5G in strength, five times the the, the, the force of gravity on you yeah. in some of these turns. And they're taking, like I said, turns left and right. Uh, so it is – also Formula One cars, today's modern ones, which we'll get to a little bit later, go a little faster than the fastest NASCAR cars, like by five miles per hour. It's like 200 is the top for NASCAR, generally speaking, and 205 for Formula One. But it's also a very different experience. It,
1: it is, yeah. And we're talking about average speeds where you know going in a circle. know, I hate to use that because a lot of yeah. people say ah, it's nothing but going in a circle and turning left. It's not. It's not that easy. I no, understand that. No, it's for NASCAR.
0: It's also it's, incredibly brutal.
1: It, it is difficult. Yeah. Yes, it's it's more difficult than you would think. But uh, but but honestly, like um, you know, when we're talking about average speeds, I mean, I, these guys, the cars accelerate a lot faster, a lot quicker mm-hmm. than a NASCAR would, and uh, they can break a lot harder than a nascar car would and mm-hmm. so when you talk about average speeds you're talking about a, over the course of a road course versus a an oval it's a significant difference in, sure. in the type of racing that it is
0: so some of the basic rules for formula one when it was uh, first coming out was that uh, originally there was no weight limit on vehicles mm-hmm. uh you did have uh, different um uh engine volumes that were allowed. If you were using a turbocharger or supercharger, then you were limited to 1500 CC, which Scott kindly informed me does not mean carbon copy in this case, but cubic centimeter. (laughs) We'll get into that in a second. Sure. And then the, uh, the, I, I think that you could have up to, uh, 3,000 cc for an, a naturally aspirated engine.
1: Sure, which means it doesn't have a sur- uh, supercharger, doesn't have a turbo or anything like that. It's just uh, – it's breathing uh, it's breathing air. That's yes. it.
0: So, yeah. so this was something that I actually had to look up because, again, not a car guy. But naturally aspirated means that it's using just the natural atmospheric pressure to feed oxygen into the – uh, the engine.
1: That's what I mean. It's not forced induction. When I say it's breathing air, of course, every engine breathes air. Yeah. This one is uh, simply just – you're right. Taking, it's taking the atmospheric um, – uh, Pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Pressure. Yeah. Pressure, yeah. yeah. Atmospheric air, I guess Whereas, if you want to put it that way.
0: But a turbocharger or a supercharger, it's pushing air into the engine. It's forced
1: right? air induction yeah. is what that is. Yeah, you're using uh, – you're forcing air into the engine. You're creating additional horsepower by by running – by ramming more air through there mm-hmm. and fuel.
0: Right. So that means that you're you're able to uh, to get fuel to the the cylinders faster. And that's the cylinders are what we're referring to when we're talking about like fifteen hundred cc. What you're really talking about is the the volume that the cylinders can hold, uh, based on the full stroke of the piston.
1: It's the displacement of the engine. So uh, what you're looking at is the the uh, the amount of space. I guess I'm going to put this in the simplest way without really getting too much into yeah. this. When the pistons travel up and down, if it's all the way at the bottom, there's a, there's a, a you know, in the cylinder itself, where the piston travels up and down, mm-hmm. there's there's a a volume of air there, mm-hmm. and that air is then you know compressed and it's filled with fuel, and mm-hmm. that's where the explosion happens and right. powers the piston down, etc. We we don't need to go into like the whole combustion cycle and everything right now, but um, that's the volume of displacement of the engine. In the mm-hmm. United States, we typically uh, use a, a different measurement. We use cubic inch displacement, CID. Right, because
0: um, we're all about
1: imperialism. Yes, we use cubic <laughs> instead inch. But, of but if you want to think of, of CC, the, easy, the easiest way to think of uh, like a CC displacement, if, um, you've heard the term like you know, a two-liter car, three-liter mm-hmm. engine, four-liter engine, whatever. Um, it, it's typically about a 1,000 CCs per liter. Mm-hmm. So a 1,000 CC engine is like a one-liter engine. And if you want to put it that way, so like the old Mustang GTS that had a five-liter engine, roughly about five thousand CCs is what the displacement would be.
0: Gotcha. And and to correct myself from earlier, I had said that I thought that the uh, for a naturally aspirated it was like three thousand CC. It's actually four thousand five hundred CC for that first race. Mm-hmm. It was a four thousand five hundred CC limit on uh, on engine volume. And this changes all the time. All the time, which yeah. is why I why I, I was fumbling because it changes. Like year to year I, that I have, can change.
1: I have a real quick rundown of, of of the the changes, if you like, real quick. I would love to hear this. Super quick. Um, so so, maybe we should talk about the current engine last. But uh, pre 1989, uh, it was unlimited cylinders. You could have as many cylinders as you want: 16 cylinders, 12 cylinders, whatever. Doesn't okay. matter. Yeah Um, in the 1990s, they switched this to 12 cylinders, and and then in the early 2000s, they went to V10s. Mm-hmm. Then up until about 2008, they used V8s. And uh, they have recently, this is uh, in 2019. uh, Right now, what they're using is a very specific. It's 1.6 liter, four-stroke turbocharged V6. So, you know, those incredible cars and the incredible speeds and and sounds that we hear are coming from a turbocharged V6 that's relatively small. And they've been doing this since 2014. Uh, Again, just a 1.6 liter engine. So, um, gosh, uh, uh, that's 1,600 CCs. I guess, if you want to put it that way.
0: Yeah, and so this is this is also fascinating is that you sit there and you look at this and you think you know these what does this actually translate to right mm-hmm. you're know, talking about engine volume mm-hmm. uh it is not necessarily equivalent to more cc's means more speed it's it's all about uh, other elements as well in engineering as a whole takes a very important part in this uh so that was another thing that was confusing to me because, all right, as a kid, I'm gonna I'm gonna really reveal my ignorance here. As a kid, to me, the exposure of the concept of CCS for engines was limited to games that involved. Uh, uh, go-kart racing video games. Yeah, sure. Because they would have the different, you know, you have a 50cc or a 100cc or 150cc. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just like bigger just means faster.
1: You know, that's typically the way it is, really. I mean, mm-hmm. but uh, somewhere along the way, you know, engineering got a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're able to get so much more power out of a smaller engine. And that's what we're seeing here. I mean, we've gone from unlimited cylinders and, you know, 16-cylinder engines in these in these uh, F1 cars down to, you know, turbocharged V6s. Yeah. And, I you know what I I don't know for sure but I would say that they're going to continue to shrink in size. Mm-hmm. I, I just have a gut feeling they're going to just continue to get smaller and smaller. Well,
0: it's also interesting because just the where we've seen the the changes in the limitations for how big the engine is allowed to be, and then we've gotten to the point now where it's even uh, it's uniform. It's saying well they all have to be specifically this particular uh, engine volume. The other element that has changed quite a bit has been whether or not you could even have a turbocharged engine in -hmm. your vehicle. Some years it was, yes, you could either have a turbo engine of this capacity or naturally aspirated of this capacity. Oh, so you
1: could have – like just for an example, you could have a turbocharged V6 or you could have a naturally aspirated V8.
0: Yeah. And then – they – there were some years where they said, OK, well, now you can't have turbocharged at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there was a time uh, – it was really in the late 60s, early 70s where that became a thing where they said, all right, we're going to remove turbocharged. Largely because there, there seemed to be an unfair advantage of some of the vehicles that were engineered with turbocharged. They were giving the natural aspirated engines a chance to catch up mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, this is something that we see from the governing body that I think – they're constantly tweaking these rules in part because they want to have the what they consider to be the most entertaining uh, result, right? The mm-hmm. most entertaining, most most competitive uh, race because if it's not competitive, people start to lose interest. You know th- you got to remember that the Formula One World Championship is actually a series of races. Mm-hmm. It's not one race. Winner take all. No, it's 20 or –
1: I think it's 21 races it's this 21 season. It's 21
0: races in 2019. Yeah, they're, so
1: the, – and they're all over the world.
0: Yeah. In fact, the United States only recently started to host them again mm-hmm. uh, and it's in Austin, Texas that mm-hmm. where it takes place. And um, the reason why the United States – this is a whole different discussion. But it's largely because Formula One racing just never got super popular in the U.S., Yeah, which, uh, you know, it was always seen as more of a European pursuit – then uh, an American one, stock car racing, was much more popular here. You know, when
1: I first moved to Detroit, this is back in the 1980s. This mm-hmm. would have been like 84, 85, somewhere around there. Uh, they ran a Formula One race in downtown Detroit on the streets of Detroit. It was a, it was wow. a road course that was on the streets of Detroit, and uh, it was in such condition at the time that it was able. they were able to do that. And uh, later, they moved it out to, uh, you know, Belle Isle, and they're still doing that now, but it's, the, you know, the cart IndyCar series. It's a different series. It's not the F1 guys like, uh, like it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found that pretty fast, and it didn't last too long when I was there. I mean, I, I don't know how many years they ran there. I, I can't remember, but... Um, I don't know. It's just it's fascinating to me that, you know, F1 just continually adjusts. And I know it's maddening to the fans because they're always changing something around, making something different. Mm -hmm. And they're always trying to kind of level, like you said, level that playing field a little bit. And I know it's 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 angering to us, you know, as, as fans to watch this and, and kind of, you know, try to keep up with the rule changes and what's happening in the series. I can imagine I can't imagine what it would be like to be a team owner that has to adhere to these and has oh, to yeah. pay for all the changes and everything. But, you know, one other thing that this does is that it can lead to incredibly boring racing. Mm-hmm. If if you get it two level, if you get everything yeah. two level. And and that was a critique of F1 for a long, long time. And it's not this way anymore. It's it's different now. I've been watching this past season, even the season before, and it's quite a bit different now because of a lot of what we're going to talk about. I know the, some of the new technologies, but um, there was no passing. You know, you'd, you'd start the race and whatever order they would end up in, you know, after turn one, turn two – that was it. That's how they finish. Yeah, and it was so boring for a long, long time. So it really,
0: was... all of what mattered was how you qualified, <laughs> because <laughs> your order of qualification dependent determined your order in the uh, in the starting for the race, and and if you weren't in that, you know, first place, and after the second or third turn. Well, you know what place you're going to get. Yeah,
1: a road course is very difficult to pass on. There's very few passing zones, uh, you know, for you to use to to manipulate. And and uh, you know, it, it's gotten a lot better. If you haven't watched Formula One, and that was your argument against it, uh, it's it's a lot different now if you mm. watch. And and that is in uh, in relation to some of the technologies that we can we can talk about a little bit later, because there are some advancements that uh, have made the racing a lot more exciting for the fans to watch and a lot more exciting for the drivers I'm sure it's not it's not uh, you know you don't you don't finish in the order that you uh, you,
0: you you started at yeah, yeah exactly
1: yeah and it's it's just it's a it's a much better race now
0: yeah and and so at the end of the series of races what they do is they have points given out to the top 10 finishers mm-hmm. of each grand prix of each race and then at the end of the season those points are Uh, totaled up and whoever has the most is the grand champion driver. But then you also have the winner teams. um,
1: Constructor championships. Constructor championships.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and when you get to that point, uh, if you're the company that is making the vehicle that is uh, like sometimes you see like one company just dominating the top, sometimes top 10 teams, then that is – where the value comes for that, that company. So, for example, Mercedes has been doing quite well um, in the last few years, and that ends up being a really valuable uh, tool for them because, as we've said before, this really does help sell cars. If you're able to say, listen, we make the cars where the elite drivers, not just elite drivers who come from the same country that made the cars, but other elite drivers who they want to play? They want to drive for a winning team. They come to us. That's a powerful advertising tool.
1: Oh, sure is. Yeah, and you know what? As you mentioned, Mercedes. The, the right now, they are currently, as we're recording this, they're they're number one in the constructors championship, mm-hmm. and uh, their driver, uh, the, the driver is uh, Lewis Hamilton. He's number one in the drivers championship as well. Obviously, I and mean, and he's a Brit in a Mercedes. Yeah, he is a Brit, and um, he uh, I think he's on his fifth title. At this point, and Mercedes is also on their fifth title. They've, yeah. They're, they're very successful in the series, uh, mm. very successful. And as is, you know, you'll find that Ferrari and McLaren, you know, they're, they're all – they all have their moments. You know, yeah. they all have uh, – it's kind of this up-down thing, you know, like where one team does dominate the series. Mm. And, and you'll find that this switches around – Routinely, not 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 necessarily throughout the season, because once you once you do find that you know someone is dominating the season, like I I would bet that uh, Lewis Hamilton's going to win his fair share of the next ten races or however many are left mm-hmm. as well, and Mercedes along with him, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll probably just go the way you think it's going to go. But next year, who knows?
0: Yeah, from season to season, you got yeah. because you have so many people that are focusing on ringing out every single little drop of performance you can get out of these vehicles. And then on top of that, you're pairing them with the best drivers in the world Mm -hmm. who can endure the incredible amount of punishment they're going to have uh, dealt upon them. I mean, if you look back at the history of Formula One racing and you want to look at stories of drivers who have gone through incredible trials and tribulations in the process of racing. There's no shortage of those stories. I remember coming across one of, there was a uh, a, a driver, I want to say he was something like five foot three inches tall, this is from the classic days of, of, of racing, who uh was so determined to race uh, – Ferrari was actually begging him to withdraw from a race because the car itself was starting to fall apart and it was a, the, one of these road races from one city to another. And they were begging him to, to stop racing. He was racing on behalf of Ferrari and he said, no, no, no. And Ferrari said, I was absolutely certain that his determination was to die behind the wheel doing what he loved. Hmm. turned out he ended up having to eventually withdraw from the race simply because the car – couldn't perform anymore. Sure, mechanical he, failure. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was according to the stories coughing up blood but still wanted to race. Holy cow, really? And he died he died uh in bed 5 years later. So it wasn't like he Passed away immediately thereafter, but he was in failing health. Oh my gosh! And was still determined, and, and he was still winning too. He was 29 minutes ahead of the next fastest
1: car. <laughs> significant distance.
0: Yes. So also shows you a lot of difference in, in between this and and say NASCAR racing. Sure. <laughs> and again, we're not we're not trying to say one is better than the other obviously. I know we keep saying that, but it's just to point out how different they are. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about before we go to break uh, is that the Formula One form factor is very distinctive, Mm -hmm. very different from the look of stock cars and other types of race cars. Uh, It's very low to the ground. It has almost sort of this very wing kind of design. Mm -hmm. And uh, the interesting thing to me uh, is that it's it's a wing, but it's a wing that's meant to do the opposite of what an aircraft wing is yeah.
1: doing. Everything is about downforce. You yeah. want the car to stick to the ground. So the faster you go, the more it adheres to the ground. And, of course, the tires are going to work with this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole car is really a giant wing, you right, that, that provides downforce instead of, instead of lift. Yeah. And if you turn around, if you're going backwards in this thing, uh, that's the unfortunate thing. You get into a turn and you turn – you spin around and you're going just as fast backwards – the problem is it becomes the opposite problem and it starts you, and lifting start the to, car it starts off. to lift the car off yes wow. and that happens in uh, it happens in a lot of forms of racing you'll find that you know that as soon as the car spins around the back end wants to come straight up in the air on you and that's that's an issue with with any of these cars that mm-hmm. you know downforce is a um, a major part of the design but uh yeah you're right it is it's open it's open wheel it's open cockpit um that's changed just a tiny little bit, and I think they're going to go maybe even a little bit further with mm-hmm. this idea. But um, that's the whole halo thing that we can talk about when we talk about technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's it's an interesting-looking car for sure. I mean, it's it's definitely – it looks like a spaceship, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they're getting to the point where there are so many facets and, f- uh, f- you know – Surfaces and and every single bit of that car is engineered for speed and for uh, its ability to cut through the air and to again provide downforce. We're talking about the tiniest little components behind the wheels. We're Mm -hmm. talking about uh, the side pods that are next to the driver. I mean, every little bit of this thing is is just tuned. To perfection, for uh, for it to be slippery through the air, mm-hmm. to conserve fuel, to go fast, to be lightweight—you know—it's all these things, it, yeah. and every single factor is, is thought of, and everything is, um, you know, scrutinized to the point where. If it doesn't belong, if it if it has no purpose, of course it's not going to be on the car. Right. If it has, um, if it does have a purpose, it's going to be made lighter somehow. It's going to be made more efficient somehow. Mm-hmm. It's going to be made of a stronger material, but a lighter material. It's going to be, um, you know, slippery through the air, as we said. You know, every every little thing is just is is to the to the tiniest tiniest little minute detail is is scrutinized. Uh, by every single person on that team, and and it makes for a fantastic vehicle. Yeah, and and it gets better and better every year. The problem is then, you know, F1 will come back and say, like, we're, we're going to make some changes.
0: Yeah, And, and they so change now, it.
1: Now your, now your strategy is no longer applicable. No. And you do have to change. And that change is something that has a domino effect. You change something at the front of the car, it not only affects that one little piece at the front of the car, mm-hmm. it has this domino effect on the aerodynamics of the car all the way back to the tail end of it. And that has to be kind of dealt with. So you end up having to do goes.
0: almost a total redesign every time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, not almost a total. I mean, not quite, but you have to refine so many different things just because of that one little change at the front of the mm-hmm. car. And and that happens, you know, they might change something in the middle of the car and that affects everything from that point back. Um, it's just, there, there's so many things. Again, this whole series is mind boggling. When you look yeah. at the rules, you look at the way um, everything, again, just has to be just, just gone over and over and over and over again to make sure that everything is perfect.
0: Man. Well, and they are perfect. When we come back, we're going to dive into that perfection a bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, stuff like, like uh, you know, I just learned before we came in here that uh, they don't do refueling anymore because when I was looking at the old histories, they talked about refueling and pit stops. We're going to talk about pit stops, talk about how much fuel these things carry uh, and You know, that will tell you how efficient they have to be in order to complete these distances because the distance for Formula One is considerable. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll talk about some of this incredible technology that you find in the vehicles of today when we come back. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do.
2: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time-ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast Straightforward, inspired by Guaranteed Straightforward Pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated AT&T Fiber Live Like a Gagillionaire available wherever you get your podcast. limited availability in select areas visit at slash hypergig for details
0: Now, Scott, before we uh, came into the the studio, you know, I we were talking about pit stops. I was actually talking about stuff I don't understand in racing. I was like, you know, I even had to look up how pit stops work mm-hmm. because I know about pit stops. I know what they're meant to do, but I was thinking, like, well, how does that work in the in the sense of the action of the race as a whole? Like, mm-hmm. you're obviously off the track at that moment. You're no longer accumulating laps. You're you're having your car. Uh, uh, having the tires usually replace that sort of thing. How does that work in the context of the full race? Not thinking, Oh wait, everybody else also has to do that. So in the end, it ends up being, uh, how, how fast and efficient your pit stop crew can be. That's when you said, why don't you take a look at like a typical formula one pit stop? And, uh, the video, by the way, guys, was 55 seconds long, 10 seconds in. It was still just the title picture. It was there were no, there's no video. Around 12 seconds in, we saw the picture of the pit crew. We didn't see a car pull into the space till about 33 seconds into this 55 second video. Uh, the car was at a full stop by 35 seconds, and the car was gone at 38 seconds. Within that span of 35 seconds to 38 seconds, the pit crew completely removed and replaced all four tires on this Formula One race car.
1: And that's a relatively slow stop.
0: Yes. And then Scott blew my mind by telling me (laughs) how fast the fastest Formula One pit stop ever was. Which
1: happened this year. I think, uh, where was it? It was the uh, Grand Prix um, in Great Britain. I I think you're right. I can't remember exactly where it happened, but um, it was a 1.9 second stop. And that means four tires off, four tires on and back out. And uh, it's that fast. It's 1.9 seconds. Um, That's the world record time at this moment, and it's probably going to drop even more. Um, But it's an incredible thing to watch if you've never seen one. Take a look at it because uh, an F one pit stop is a is a thing of beauty. It's it's so it's, choreographed. It's
0: terrifying. <laughs>
1: it is so choreographed. It's so it's so perfect in every in every aspect. I mean, the mm-hmm. way that the team handles themselves, uh, it's it's completely different from any other series in the way that they do this. Now we've taken out the complexity of adding fuel. Yes, uh, that does take some time. Not as much time as you might think. Uh, you know, to add. <laughs> Sometimes twenty plus gallons of fuel to a car. It only takes a few seconds, really.
0: Yeah, when when um, you, you know, when you compare that to your average experience at a typical fuel pump, you might think, when are we going to get that technology <laughs> you at don't my want, local
1: gas station? You don't want that technology. There's yeah. there's a lot of problems that come with with forcing 20, <laughs> 20 plus gallons of fuel into a car in you know in three seconds.
0: Yeah, you might think uh, while you're standing there. I would really, especially if you're say outside in the Georgia heat in the middle of the day, refueling your car, you might think, I would really like to get back in the air conditioning. But some things we're happy to trade off on. Yeah, That's right.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's a lot easier. And they have uh, just switched over to this. And I think they've done it for a couple of years now. Uh, they've removed the uh, the idea that they are are uh, refueling a car during the race. Mm-hmm. So you fill up before the race and after the race. Of course, you know, during qualifying and, you know, other, other activities, practice, uh, they're allowed to fuel in the pits. Of course, they have to. Uh, but during the race, they just don't do it. The cars are designed so that they burn or they're intended to burn. And that's one of the F1 regulations is that Mm you, um, y- your engine is only allowed to burn a certain amount of fuel per hour. Right. And uh, they, they calculated that, that out so that, you know, during the race, it doesn't burn more than what you're able to carry. Mm-hmm. And if it does, that means that your engine's running too rich anyway, and you're not supposed to be doing that. Right, uh, you're, you're in violation of the rules. So um, every car that's out there has enough fuel in them from the very beginning to go the full distance without having to do that. They just do the tires only. And that's different right there. The other thing is that you know they have like I think it's fourteen or sixteen people out to do this procedure. This uh, this this. You know stop.
0: Yes, it's a much larger uh, pit crew than you would see in NASCAR for example.
1: Yeah, everybody has just one single job. And I know that in NASCAR, you know, there's uh, you know, they're very specific jobs as well or you know in IndyCar or whatever, but uh, far fewer people are over the wall as they say in those in those mm-hmm. sports. Now this one there's a garage area and so they, they just kind of wander out into this this box, you know, where they pull into to do the pit stop, but right. um Fourteen or sixteen—I can't remember the number of people that, that do this. But um, you know, when you have one job, I mean one job, all you do is your job is to remove the tire that comes in off the car that was just on the track. Mm-hmm. That's it. Just take the tire off. Once it's once the uh the uh, the wheel nut is gone, which is another person's job, the wheel nut comes off, the wheel nut goes back on. Yeah. You know, it's that's it. And it, one person operates of course the front jack, the back jack. And you know there's there's people making adjustments and all that, but um when you ha- there's what is it? 3 or three maybe even four people per tire. I yeah. think it's I think it's three per tire. It's yes, one to take it one, off.
0: one person who's one person who's bringing on the new tire. So they have the new tire, they're waiting You have one person whose job it is to take the tire off, and then you have one person whose job it is to remove and replace the nut.
1: So just getting those three people in that one tiny little area to operate and and function without knocking each other over every time, it's incredible. It's really interesting to watch, and I can't imagine the countless hours they have to practice to make every single move perfect.
0: Right, right. You have to conserve uh, your your space because if you're not, then you're wasting time. No,
1: if you you make a pit stop that is even – let's say it's double – the time that we just talked about let's yeah. say it's it's 3.8 seconds that's a disaster yeah i mean that's crazy to think about but 3.8 seconds is a disaster because you're, you're going
0: to have to make up that lost time someone uh, even if you were in number 1 if you're leading by less than 2 seconds and the person behind you, when they have their pit stop, is not taking nearly as long. You know, you've you've lost time.
1: Pit strategy is is really something fun to watch, and I know that it sounds terribly boring when I just say it like this. No, and, you, you know, we gotta talk about watch it, but, a video of these guys. But when you're watching the race, and and you kind of get into it, that, you know, towards the end, and you know, the pit strategy becomes so vital in winning a race in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, it's 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 there's far more to it than you might think, really. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating to watch. It's and, a game of chess.
0: We were talking a bit about the uh, the distance you have to go. So uh, the last thing I saw about distances was that you would complete a number of laps that are equivalent – actually that exceed 305 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So the minimum of a Grand Prix is 305 kilometers with one exception, that exception being – Monaco. Mm-hmm. In Monaco it is 260 and a half kilometers.
1: It's a tighter track there. Yeah. It's a, a smaller area as you can imagine Monaco's not a very large. Uh, was it was Providence? What is what is Monaco? I don't even It's a principality. It's, uh, it's, to
0: me it's it's the most magical place on earth. <laughs> I've visited it and it's
1: amazing. <laughs> oh, I bet it is. Yeah, I'd it's love to beautiful. go. It's beautiful. I'd love to go. That'd be cool. Yeah. But uh, but it is it is very tight and Monaco uh, Monaco's a different race altogether.
0: Right. Well, and if you were to add another lap on there so that it would end up you you know, being closer to the correct distance, it would go too far. So mm-hmm. it's one of those where you have to, you know, you have to make a call. Oh, sure. And, uh, but yeah, Monaco is pretty phenomenal. It's also – whenever I see footage of the race in Monaco, it is terrifying to yeah. me to watch these cars going down these these roads. And, and sometimes you see people watching on not – terribly far away from where these cars are, are rushing by at more than 200 miles per hour. Yeah,
1: or they're on balconies kind of hanging over the track. Yeah. It's, uh, it's it's an interesting race. I love Monaco. It's beautiful. And um, it's fun to watch the race there because it is so, um, it's steeped in history as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's so tight and it's so fast and you get that real sensation of speed there um, that you might not get. Well, you actually, you know, you get it in a lot of, of road courses, but there's just something magical about Monaco. It's beautiful. It's really interesting. Um, You know, gosh, you know, I don't know where to go with this. We've got so much material here. I don't know if I'm overstepping my bounds here, but but I would love to talk about the engine for just a moment if we can, because the engine, and we haven't talked about cost or anything on this yet. So, all right. I recently did a program on the, on the fast track Mm -hmm. about why there are five reasons why you can't put an F1 engine into your road car.
0: I wanna hear this.
1: Because <laughs> a lot of people have engine swap questions. And like you said before, you don't really know a whole lot about racing engines yeah. versus car engines. And they're dramatically different, especially an F1 engine. You can't just stuff an F1 engine into a road car and expect it to work. And there's a lot of reasons, probably 100 reasons why this wouldn't work. But the five, and I'm going to go through them super fast. If, sure. you, want to, if you want to hear it, you can, I guess I can plug my own show, right? Yes, you can, absolutely. You could go over to the fast track and listen to the uh, the five reasons explained in more detail. But um, the first one is uh, they're, they're really hard to start. Now, this is kind of tough to comprehend here, but A normal engine, you're able to attach a wrench to it in the front and and spin the engine. You're able to make the pistons move up and down Mm -hmm. using a, a large lever. Uh, mm-hmm. It does take some mechanical advantage to be able to do that. But you can spin your own car engine that way. Okay, It's a lot like turning the prop on an airplane. Gotcha. If you could imagine that. Yep. It's, it's yep. started. And you could theoretically turn it fast enough to start the car like the old crank starts. But right. don't want to do that. Right. So um, – <laughs> I you, have
0: a feeling you would end with, up quickly breaking every bone in your body as it starts <laughs> yeah, spinning around. Absolutely.
1: And, yeah. you shatter your arms. Um, th- this uh, – you know, with, with the F1 engine, it's it's a lot different. You You cannot turn an F1 engine when it's cold. Mm. It, they are they are created with such a tight or high tolerance. They're engineered so uh, precisely, mm-hmm. like like a like a fine watch or something like that. That I mean, they're so precisely engineered and, and fitted together that the pistons are essentially seized in the engine at at like the ambient temperature. So it doesn't matter what the temperature is out here. It's it's you have to pump. You have to external use external pumps to pump heated fluids through this thing. You know, both coolant and the uh, the engine oil the lubricant mm-hmm. and it has to be up to i think it's 176 degrees fahrenheit before you can even begin to move the pistons within the piston uh, cylinders wow that's how tightly they are they are engineered they're, they're such precision machines mm-hmm. and i had no idea that that was uh, you know a factor in this whole thing so you would not be able to just get into the car and start it up like you could a normal engine you would have to have these external pumps heat up the engine and then you know, and then even then, you would have to have an external starting unit, you know, which is like a big drill, yeah. that starts the whole thing um, you know it spins at like you know several thousand rpm in order to get it even going, and even then it's hard to start it's it's difficult to get the fuel flowing correctly and all that so
0: this is this um, is amazing it what it reminds me of is um how you start up jet engines because a jet not not that it works on the same principle, these are two different principles. don't yeah. get me wrong, but to start a jet engine, you have to pump. Uh, pressurized air mm-hmm. through the jet engine because it's designed to operate once you are at a certain speed mm-hmm. th- moving through the air. Well, obviously uh, on ground, you're not moving through the air yet. No. So you can't get those turbines turning at the proper speed for it to be a self-propelling uh, uh, reaction, right? This yeah. idea that the the turbines turn because of the outgoing uh, exhaust from the jet engine, that, that provides the turning force to keep the turbines coming to pull air through the engine. So you have to pump uh, uh, pressurized air into it first. And typically you do that either using an auxiliary power unit or you have uh, the little huffer carts that hook up to an engine. So to me, like when you started explaining this, I'm like, wow, this sounds a lot like how it's hard to start a jet engine. It's just that we're talking about an internal combustion engine, not a jet engine, obviously. So there are differences.
1: No, there are differences, but that's fascinating. You have to have these external factors in order to Mm -hmm. begin the thing, even uh, to even start the process. And that's what this is.
0: All right. I'm just going to tap the brakes here so that we can take one more, you know, break for ads. And then we're going to be back with the conclusion of Formula One 101. Mm -hmm. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do.
2: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
1: As you might have guessed, uh, they're not cheap. And uh, this is the first time we're going to really talk about prices here on this. I, I think this is the first time. Get this, okay? And I this blew me away. Yeah, I'm talking about just the engine, just right. the price of the engine. These range between seven point seven million and ten and a half million dollars per per engine. Just the engine for just the engine. Another good reason why you weren't going to put these in a regular road car. Just one engine. That's all we're talking about. So yeah, even I mean, any manufacturer would never be able to justify putting an engine like this in their car. Now there are there are some derivatives of. An F1 engine that have been have kind of showed up into road cars, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe the uh, V10 engine that was used in an F1 car, but it's not you know meticulous. It's not as um, um, uh, finely tuned. is not as you know. It doesn't have all of the the components of right. an F1 engine. Of course, it's right. just derived from it.
0: Right. It's it's the design of the F1 informed the design of this other engine.
1: Exactly. And and these F1 engines they spin at something like fifteen thousand RPMs. They can go up to twenty thousand RPMs, <laughs> which is like I I mean that's like that's motorcycle or even faster RPMs in a, in an engine for a, yeah. a race car.
0: Yeah, if you if you saw that that gauge on your dashboard, you might flip out a bit.
1: <laughs> this next one is what you're what you're talking about. It's cooling. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to keep these engines cool, uh, you would have to travel at such incredible rates of speed, and not only that, uh, the design of your car would have to be so dramatically different from what it is mm-hmm. uh, that that you would have to build these enormous side pods on it with these huge um you know radiators and that would kind of like negate any performance advantage you might have from such gotcha. a strong engine you're going to you're going to have such a, a like a wacky design i guess mm-hmm. better less, lack of good way to say this just to dissipate the heat that's yeah, coming off that those, engine those enormous side pods on the car the ones that yeah. are next to the driver uh, those are big cooling pods and and think of uh, those as having giant radiators inside them that mm-hmm. are laid out at kind of a forty five degree angle mm-hmm. from the front kind of laid down to the back they're they're really big they're they're several feet long and they're except you know extremely as wide as they can make them really. Mm-hmm. And that requires so much airflow over top of them to keep it cool, you know, because these engines run so hot um that you know you just would it just wouldn't be possible to keep the amount of incoming cool air that you would need to keep the engine cool gotcha. in, a, in a regular road car And right. without dramatically redesigning everything. Um, we did talk about fuel a little bit. And um, I want to tell you that uh, these are designed, you're not allowed to burn through more than 100 liters of, of petrol per hour of, of driving. So that's the limit is 100 liters per hour. That's about 13.2 gallons of fuel if you want to, um, you know, Extrapolate what that what that hundred liters amounts to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do carry around 225 liters for a race, though. So that's a lot of fuel that they're carrying on board for yeah. these things. So they do get through the whole race without without refueling. That's about 60 gallons of fuel that they carry. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the race, they're probably running pretty low, if I had to guess. Yeah. I well, yeah,
0: because it's like the again the time limit at max, assuming there are no red flag stoppages, yeah. is two hours. And
1: it's, this is surprising to me. The fuel mixture that they use mm-hmm. is not terribly different from what you might use in a road car. Yeah. It's yeah. strange. Now, you might think that you know, they're using some kind of crazy jet fuel or something. You know, like people love to think that you know, they're using rocket fuel or something. It's really not that much different from what we use. It is, it is formulated a little different. It's very specific per vehicle, and I'll tell you how they do that. At the end of the race, they analyze um, the oil. Uh, they they take the engine oil from each car mm-hmm. and they take a sample of it and they run it uh, to their chemist and their chemist looks at it for up to 15 different types of metal that might be found in that oil at the end of a race. So that, that indicates where the wear is coming from. So mm-hmm. you know, part of an engine is wearing a little bit prematurely causing metal flakes to break off and get into the oil they know where that metal came from because it might be the piston ring it might be the piston itself it might be from you know the the uh, camshaft you know whatever bearings they have in there they're able to determine from the 15 different types of metal where that wear is coming from and then they they send that information to the person who is is developing the fuel for them or the the company that's developing the fuel and then they specially formulate the fuel for the next race in order to minimize the amount of wear that happens at in that the,
0: one part of the engine.
1: In the next race, yes. Wow. Yes. So the, it, that's how specific this gets. And you can imagine that that's not cheap to do that.
0: Yeah. Now, there was a time before the the formalization of these rules where there was a little bit more experimentation with, mm-hmm. with car fuels. And that's probably where these stories about rocket fuel and stuff come out of. Largely from uh, also Germany. Pre World War Two, happened. <laughs> uh, they they experimented a lot with that. Yeah, but then there were rules that essentially said. That Formula One race cars were to run on petrol. Uh, it's just it's very precisely formulated sure. petrol.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very exacting science. So it's not exactly what we're thinking of when we go to the pump. Yeah, you're not you're not like
0: hitting 87, 89
1: or, no. or Formula One. <laughs> no, it's not not quite that simple. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are exact requirements for each one, and then even then they fine tune it throughout the season, mm-hmm. extremely fine tuned. Uh, the last one on this is, of course, the lifespan of the engine. Now we've all seen races where a car goes out and uh, uh, you know, two laps in, they develop some major problem, and right. uh, you know, after all this money, all this, everything we've talked about, you know, they're they're I don't know, ten miles into the race, and there's catastrophic engine failure. Yeah, because they're they're sub, uh, subjected to so much pressure, so much uh, so much force is happening mm-hmm. in these engines at this time. Yeah, I mean, we're saying that you know they spin around what twenty thousand RPM. That means that the the pistons are traveling up and down about three hundred times every second. It's so incredible. Yeah, 300 times every single second. So that's the type of pressures that we're talking about. I mean, we're saying like, uh, I want to say it's like 15,000 or 1500 PSI is what those uh, cylinders are subjected to every second. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pressure in these things. And of course, they have to be rebuilt all the time. And we know this from racing. We've seen this in so many different mm-hmm. series. Um, you know, drag racing, they practically do it every quarter mile. Yeah, They rebuild engines all the time, right? It, or even less if it doesn't make it a quarter mile. Um, but most race cars can only last one, maybe two races at the most before mm-hmm. they have to be rebuilt. These are every race. And uh, the maximum that they can reach is about maybe maybe two races at the most. Like 621 miles, it's about 1,000 kilometers is like the maximum life at optimal conditions for mm-hmm. an F1 engine. Which means that if you were to put one of these into your road car, <laughs> wow! Think about you know so how not, many.
0: Not only is it seven to twelve million dollars, but seven to twelve million dollars every
1: this many times. And I'll wow. tell I'll tell you. So the average U.S. person person puts thirteen thousand four hundred and seventy six miles on a car every year. That's average if you own a vehicle. That means that you would be re- rebuilding your engine twenty two times each year if you were average. Now most a lot of people, of course, are going to be way above that average. A lot sure. are going to be under, but. Twenty-two times per year, you're spending seven and a half to ten and a half million dollars. Uh, so I'm
0: gonna need to sell some more Girl Scout cookies.
1: Do you see what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and I, I, again, if you want more detail on all this, and maybe you don't, maybe that was way too much to be. No, no, with, but, it's not. But <laughs> <laughs> if you go and if you want more detail on this, you can go to the uh, the Fast Track Show and, and listen all about it. But um, I find the numbers in Formula One to be just fascinating, and yeah. the, the the dollar amounts and and. Should we just briefly talk about the car? Yeah,
0: because we've we've started it with the engines. Let's talk about how expensive this kind of vehicle is when you're looking at it soup to nuts. And then we'll also talk about – I mean you can also mention things like that's one expense, right? One expense is just the vehicle. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, you have to actually pay money to be part of this whole experience. So there are companies (laughs) that are spending – Mind-boggling amounts of money yeah. on participating in Formula One.
1: Yeah, and so for some of the uh, the smaller teams, if you want to call them that, the ones that aren't in the uh, the upper echelon, mm-hmm. uh, they're spending right around two hundred and fifty million dollars a year to be part of F one for one season. So a quarter
0: of a billion dollars per year. Yeah, and to if- to be in.
1: This and if you uh, happen to be working for you know Ferrari, McLaren, Mercedes, Red Bull, you know the top teams mm-hmm. in the series right now, mm-hmm. we're talking about four hundred plus million dollars every single year, and a lot of that, of course, goes into the car. It takes mm-hmm. uh, you know between it's going I'm going to say I, I see a number here that's a little bit low given that we just learned that you know the engine is ten and a half million. Sometimes I'm going to say that um, anywhere between twelve and fifteen million dollars per vehicle mm-hmm. per car. So when you see, you know, an F1 car that's destroyed in an accident on the track, you're talking about a, a you know, b- between 12 and $15 million loss to the team. Yikes. They might be able to salvage a few parts here and there, but um, essentially it's a 12 to $15 million uh, loss at that point. Um, of course, that doesn't happen often where they lose every single bit of the car. Sure. But they do lose parts. And, and I've got a list here of the parts, and I, I will not go over every part of this, but this kind of blew my mind when I saw this. You know, how often... Uh, do you see where an f1 car goes on the track and they hit a little bit of debris? Yeah. you know something a, a, not a tire necessarily, but something that's on the track mm-hmm. They bump a corner or whatever another car even um, you know that front wing is designed to come right off and right back on. They do it super quick. They can do it in a second, two seconds, whatever it takes. It's super fast that part that front wing part can mm-hmm. cost be anywhere between one hundred and fifty thousand to two hundred and thirty five thousand dollars.
0: Scott, I'm beginning to feel like I'm in the wrong business. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, mean, I, I can make
0: like – two wings a year yeah. and be living like a king.
1: You know, the thing like, OK, I, I'm going to I'm going to wrap up with with another one in, in a moment here because I want to show you something in specific. But um, if the the transmission in the car, we talked about the engine already. The transmission yeah. in the car can, can be up to six hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> um, you know, if you're on a lower end team, you're only paying only about four hundred thousand for that. But if you want to upgrade, bargain. you know, you, you're going to have a six hundred thousand dollar engine. That's for the top teams. Again, the fuel tank alone, just because of the way it's designed and, mm-hmm. and what the material it's made of hundred and forty thousand dollars and that's kind of a, again a low- end tank the uh the, the carbon fiber monocoque design you know which is essential to the safety of the driver and the, the structure of the car itself mm-hmm. that's very expensive and teams won't scrimp on that uh, there are lower cost options I believe but most teams are paying around six hundred and fifty thousand dollars for that and of course mm-hmm. once it's damaged it's done you yeah. don't get a re- you don't get to reuse that that has to uh, be replaced. Um, as is with with most of these parts, um, there's the halo device, which uh, is that uh, crazy thing that goes over their um over their heads now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of blocks in the uh, um it protects the. Um, exposed helmet and head of the of the driver. Mm-hmm. That's something that I I wish we had more time to talk about. Really, it's a pretty fascinating piece of tech that uh, that I I just love the tech that goes into these cars. I yeah. really do. There's uh, that is uh, it's designed to hold the weight of a double decker bus, a London double decker bus. If you were to just set it on top of it, I think it's like twenty six thousand five hundred pounds. Wow! It can withstand that, and it's designed again. Like if a you know a tire is coming at the driver, mm-hmm. if it's it's an outside company that builds it. They build kind of like the. Uh, it's it's made out of. Um, oh gosh, I have a note here. It's made out of like platinum, I think. Um, That's oh. not cheap. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, no, it's not cheap. And you know, I do have a note. I'll have to. I'll I'll find it here in just a moment. But it's uh, it's like a certain aerospace grade platinum level five something. It's it's crazy. The yeah. And it, it's really really expensive, and it's it's um it's it's kind of a heavy item, but it's essential for their safety because mm-hmm. it is this open cockpit, and they have had so many. Um, you know, incidents where a tire has come up, or a piece of suspension, or a, a full car, you know, has come up and landed on the on the other vehicle. And of course, you know, with your your helmet and your head exposed, there, it's it's a, a really dangerous type of racing. This open cockpit. I mean, that's that's
0: been part of the Formula One history too. Is the fact that it's been a very dangerous sport, uh, one in which in the early years of Formula One racing, not a whole lot of thought was given to driver safety mm-hmm. necessarily. It was, you know, that was not. It, it was sort of considered. It was kind of like the space race in many ways, in that it was thought that that if you were the type of person to pursue a career in that space, you were a thrill seeker, and it was the 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 importance of racing and going fast was more important than uh, doing, you know, safety features. Like you have astronauts. You you can listen to interviews with astronauts about. Well, do you worry about? Like how dangerous this is. It's like, I'm no, I'm, I'm, I, I have, I feel compelled to do this. Mm-hmm. And the same thing was sort of thought of in the old racing days. Was that, yeah, you know, safety be great and all, but that's not right, what we're worried about.
1: Well, you know, I can tell you now. I, I found this note. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the strongest part of the car, and that shows you. It tells you how much they're um you know firmly uh, backing this idea that yes. driver safety is becoming more and more and more important as the decades progress in yeah. Formula One and in, in the 60s yeah, they were a little bit more lax with that type of thing and that's why drivers like Jackie Stewart and several others that you other names that you would recognize uh they they, re, they protested uh, they, they sat out races they didn't race in mm-hmm. certain places because they were losing friends every month
0: yeah they, uh, no the the reason why we saw changes was largely because the drivers and the races were st- Starting to demand changes.
1: Yeah, the cars were getting so fast, so fast, and the tracks were so fast, and the uh, the safety standards just weren't there. They just mm-hmm. they just weren't protecting the drivers the way that they should. And and Jackie Stewart realized this, and several other racers did as well. There's uh, there's a lot of information out there on Jackie Stewart and what he did to per- like, kind of push safety forward in Formula One, and it's a huge leap forward for the drivers and, and the safety, and you know just kind of their overall uh, well being, I guess. And I found um, this note about. The uh, the halo and I'm sorry I think I said did I say platinum I hope I didn't say platinum when I when I said what material it was I won't tell you that <laughs> you said platinum <laughs> it's it's a mandatory um, device obviously it's aerospace industry grade five titanium oh titanium, titanium. that makes much more okay. sense <laughs> yeah, it probably does yeah um, but it can again it can withstand the weight of that London double decker bus which is like twenty six thousand five hundred pounds it, it is incredible it is the strongest part of the car at this point and mm. again that's a that's a nod to safety um, another piece of tech a couple pieces of tech that um, finally we're getting to tech, right? Tech yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, you know they have biometric gloves that the drivers wear now? I don't know if you knew this or not. No, we didn't did talk not. about this, but they the drivers wear biometric gloves, and this is actually a safety feature because it facilitates the medical response to the driver when they're, uh, you know, if there's a medical situation that's happening and the driver doesn't even really know what's happening mm. yet, it registers in these gloves with pulse rate. Um, it, it's also got, um, oh, what's the the oxygen level in your blood? Oh, okay. uh, blood level. Yeah. It measures that, um, but it will tell them as they approach the vehicle, you know, if it's been in an accident, the driver's condition and what to look for. You know, they'll, they'll know pretty much exactly what's going on with that driver at that mm-hmm. point, whether they've got a pulse, whether they don't. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times they don't. I mean, these, these wrecks are pretty severe when they do happen. I mean, yeah, you're going um, at
0: incredible speeds in a, in a vehicle that's still, even with the added safety features, it's very design is one that you You could easily see there there'd be some pretty catastrophic uh, injuries if if there is a crash.
1: and I didn't mean to step over your uh, your discussion about the space race and and you know, the no, astronauts and no, how they, they I mean, but these guys they they know going into this just like just yeah. like the astronauts, they know going into this that they're in it for the whole thing. It's yeah. either it's all or none for them. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always that chance every single time and it's not being overly dramatic it's true. It, it, every single time they get into that car it could be the last time they get into yeah. that car. Yeah. And and they know it and, and as does as do the astronauts they know yeah. it. They know what they're in for. Uh but they knowingly take the risk because uh, you know the reward for them is is so great that they decide that you know this is something I want to do and I want to uh, dedicate my life to this, really.
0: So they've got these these biometric gloves. One of the things that I've also noticed about Formula One race cars is uh, the, the steering mechanism is very different from what you would see in a standard vehicle.
1: <laughs> Have you been peeking at my notes?
0: No, I'm just thinking about pictures <laughs> I've seen of these crazy... Steering mechanisms. Do
1: you you remember early on when we sat down and I said, I'm going to turn this piece of paper over on the desk here so you can't see what it is? That is what it is. It's a steering wheel. And I don't know what's more complex. My notes around the steering wheel (laughs) or the steering wheel itself. But the steering wheel in a Formula One car is incredibly complex. And the thing is, I've watched a lot of videos about this and – the buttons really do make sense when you have a driver describe to you what they are.
0: Right. So if you were to look at a picture of this, because, you know, obviously this being an audio podcast, you aren't given the benefit of what Scott just showed me, which was a picture of this. It it looks kind of like a video game controller in a way. Yeah. Right. It's, it's calling it a wheel seems uh, like it would be misdirection because it's not a full wheel shape. Hmm. You've got the you've got the little bit of the wheel on the left and right sides, but it really does look kind of like a video game controller. Almost like it has a screen in the in the the front, it's got some dials and some buttons uh that are in easy reach uh, where of your hand placement. Uh, I see now that there are clutch buttons on the wheel itself, hmm. which is interesting. I have no idea what the rest of these things do. So tell me a little bit about this.
1: I'll make it quick because uh, there's way too much to cover here. This is its own podcast, really. The the tech that's involved in in a uh, Formula One steering wheel is unbelievable. There are videos about this. There's a lot of online articles about it. And in fact, I will tell you that the price of the steering wheel, Mm -hmm. uh, it probably would not surprise you to hear that this is expensive as well between fifty and $100,000 per wheel. Now, a lot of racers, a lot of drivers for each car will have up to three different wheels. They'll have a primary wheel that they normally use. They'll have a backup, you know, just in case something happens, you know, during an accident or whatever, you know, practice or it just malfunctions. And then they'll also have a lot of times an experimental wheel that uh, then loads on new buttons, has new systems, new settings, that type of thing. Uh, you know, so the buttons do different things. And it's, it's, less complicated than you might think. I mean, when you're looking at it, it's extremely complicated, but the drivers learn this very quickly, they uh, they understand every single function of it, and it's all within reach, and it's it's all customized to them. The hand grips are customized; they're formed mm-hmm. to their hands, so they fit exactly in their hand. It's not a it's not a one size fits all thing. They're all different shapes, they're all different sizes, and uh, the buttons are essentially the same. I mean, there's I mean, I got to go through every single one again, but you know, there's like a radio button, as you might expect. There's a neutral and reverse button for the car, so you don't um, inadvertently run over your crew as you pull into the pit. You know, you can get mm-hmm. in neutral. There's the uh, the pit lane speed limiter, which is limited to either 80 kilometers per hour or 60 depending on the track mm-hmm. and how much space you have. It, it, each track has its own uh, pit lane speed. There's, um, there's a button for uh, something called the drag reduction system, which we haven't even talked about. But drag reduction system is a, like movable aerodynamic wing on the back of the car.
0: So it's like the elements you would see on an, on an aircraft.
1: Yes, it's, yes.
0: It's like the, the the flight surfaces on wings and, and tails
1: of aircraft. Yes, and you can reduce your drag by, by pushing this button. And there are certain parameters where a driver is allowed to do that, but it's controlled by the driver with a button on this wheel. Mm. And it's really – it's just the uh, flap on the rear wing that uh, gives you an aerodynamic advantage in order to pass – the car that's in front of you. And you have, again, the parameters are like certain zones on the track that you're able to use this. And I think you have to be within one second of the car in front of you in order to push the button, one mm. second following speed. Now, um, I, I guess that's up to, you know, F1 rule makers, you know, exactly how close you were when you use this. But it does give, it, give you an advantage and it promotes passing. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things they've done to make it a little more exciting. Um, there are differential settings that are for entry and exit of turns. And this changes the balance of the car while you're driving it. Wow! So you can kind of promote, um, you know, additional, additional oversteer, additional understeer, whatever you like. You can kind of fine tune the car as you're driving it. Um, there are, of course, you know, there's, there's clutch operation for gear shifts, of course. That's what you saw earlier. There's mm-hmm. p- paddles on both sides up and down. Uh, there's an overtake button. There's uh, a mess buttons. There's. Uh, it seems like there's, of course, there's an energy recovery harvesting button, which means that, right. uh, you know, you can gain that little extra boost of power if you need it for passing. Right. Um, there's the
0: button to uh, listen to your favorite iHeartRadio podcasts. There's, <laughs> there's that one. Yeah, the they, one that has
1: a little heart on it. The, the most confusing. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. <laughs> the, yeah, the, uh, the most confusing ones to me are the dials. There are dials at the bottom that have, you know, like tire presets or chassis presets. Wow. And you can kind of fine tune the chassis that way, but it's not just a button. The driver has to remove. With his hands from the wheel, his biometric glove from mm-hmm. the wheel and fine-tune the chassis and the tires and you know all this. it's it's just it's a fascinating, Feature to this whole thing, and and you can control so much from it. I can I can understand why it's expensive, but yeah, I don't know, fifty thousand dollars expensive. <laughs> it's I mean that's the price of a car. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, just uh, that wheel. Get up to a hundred thousand. That's the price of a, a small house. Yeah, you know, and and they need three per vehicle. I mean, it, 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 it's it, incredible. it's incredible. The, the prices are just insane. But I love the series mm-hmm. overall. I think as you been able to tell i've I've gone on and on here for probably far too long. Uh, but i I am I'm a big Formula One fan. I hadn't watched it for a long time. I kind of got back into it last season. and the the problem here in the United States is that oftentimes the races because they're being held many times over in Europe, yeah. Uh, they might start at you know six in the morning here yeah uh, you yeah. know when it's like a midday race there mm-hmm. and so that makes it a little difficult to watch unless you're recording it and, right uh, and i I have in the past recorded them yeah but um if I happen to be up on Sunday morning at six am usually that's what's on my screen
0: it's pretty cool I mean like I said just the watching the videos that I've seen uh it it really does bring together that that Necessary combination of incredible engineering and technology and amazing, like, laser focus yeah. for everybody involved on that team, whether it's the driver or the crew. It's it's phenomenal how synchronized everything has to be in order to ring out – every thousandth of a second you can because mm-hmm. that could be the difference between coming in first or second
1: sure and you know we are i think we say this every time or at least I do on my show anyways this is kind of the tip of the iceberg yeah there are there's so much tech that is crammed into these cars there there are entire sections on the F1 site if you go to f1.com mm-hmm. you can look up just the technical information and just the technical um, advantages that have been created or, or um, um, you know, fine-tuned just this year by certain teams. Yeah. And you can go back in different years. You can look at 2018's upgrades and 17's and you can look at historical documents. And there's so much information available on in the series and it's just – again, it's, if you're a tech person and I would guess that you would be listening to this podcast – uh, there, there is more tech here than uh, you can imagine. It's just, yeah. a, it's a fascinating series. It is Love
0: amazing. It. it is amazing. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say before we sign off. Uh, one of those is that uh, I did mention I was going to briefly explain the difference between Formula One and Formula Two racing. Uh, the biggest difference is that in Formula Two racing, every team is racing with the same b- car, essentially the mm-hmm. same basic type of vehicle and engine. So there's no differentiation there. And the idea is to create a more level playing field and also to reduce the cost of entry. Um, And if you go to Formula Three and Formula Four, as you go up the numbers, uh, then you'll see that the barrier to enter is slightly lower. Yeah. By lower, I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars instead of the millions of dollars. (laughs) So it's So your mileage may
1: vary. You're not buying a $10.5 million engine for your Formula 4 car.
0: Yeah. Uh, So it's also kind of it becomes sort of almost a league, a farm league yeah. for for future Formula One drivers. There's only so many Formula One drivers who are allowed to participate per year.
1: Yeah. So F1 scouts not only will they go to other series and look for F1 drivers, people that are, are talented in their own series. Whether that's, uh, gosh, it could even be NASCAR, it could be IndyCar, kart, mm-hmm. could be any of those series. But they often will go to you know the Formula Two series and take a look at you know who's who's the uh, the young rising star right. in that series.
0: Right. And maybe we. Try them out and add them to the team next season to, for the Formula One team.
1: Yeah, here, here are the keys. Oh, it's not keys, but here's the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's just say it that way anyway. Here are the keys to the uh, the fifteen million dollar car. Yeah. Don't uh, don't wreck it,
0: Junior. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't get a scratch on the paint, please. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't know. If the, I don't think there are any F1 drivers that are named Junior. Probably not. Lots no. of lots of NASCAR drivers.
0: A lot of juniors over in NASCAR. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe you'll have a lot of the thirds. Well, over yeah, in maybe. <laughs> maybe yeah. um, but but yeah that's that was one of the things the other thing i wanted to mention was that uh you know we kind of toyed around a little bit in the history of grand prix racing but that's something that you and ben covered at great length in a previous episode of car stuff and i want people to be aware of that because if you really i mean this is an incredibly rich and fascinating history um it's full of drama not just in the races but in just the the progression, the evolution of the 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 sport, and uh, so yeah, I want do, do
1: you have that episode? I, I do, and you know what? There might even be drama in the podcast. I'm not sure. I mean, it's Ben; <laughs> he's sort of a drama it's... queen. <laughs> no, between Ben and I, there might be a little bit of drama. You never know. Uh, but we did actually a two part series mm-hmm. on on this. We did how Formula One works. So um, if you search how Formula One works on carstuffshow.com uh, in the the uh, search box up there, uh, you will find uh, back in May of 2013 we did that two-part series mm-hmm. and it's roughly, you know, it's, I think they're about 40, 45 minutes each. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's uh, it's a pretty good look back at Grand Prix racing and then, of course, Formula One and some of the, the players and some of the uh, the rules and, mm-hmm. and, of course, now we're uh, we're six years beyond this. Yeah. So, you know, what we're talking about right now is a little bit different than what it was back then but yeah. essentially the history is never going to change, obviously. Right, so right. Uh, you're going to get... A, uh, a full story there, if you want to go back and look at that. And awesome! Thank you for referring them to them. Absolutely, uh, always Absolutely. use some more views on that one, right?
0: Yeah, you, you know, it never hurts to get that download number <laughs> popping up a couple of months. It yeah. feels good. Yeah, why
1: not? This, but, is, this has been fun.
0: But yeah, it's also—I mean, it's to to nail this home. I mean, we know that in 2020, the it'll be different from 2019. Like, the, there'll be different rules that'll come into play, and it'll it'll uh, end up putting teams in a in a you know, a scramble to get everything finely tuned. And we'll see that progression happen throughout the season as well.
1: I, I know um, the fans are already talking, you know, 2020, 2021. They're talking about rules and and potential rules and, mm-hmm. you know, what that's going to mean. And fans love to talk about this stuff and, you know, to argue about it. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's actually kind of fun to get into the forums and read about some of this stuff or just, you know, to kind of kind of lurk there in the background and, and watch what's going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, and here, here as a baseball fan, I thought, just getting into arguments about the designated hitter rule is passionate. I got nothing on race car fans.
1: <laughs> uh, they, do get, uh, they do get passionate. They yeah, get intense. They intense. do. They
0: get intense. That's a good word for it. And maybe we'll even do a deeper dive on tech in Formula One in the, in the near future, kind of really dive into some of this stuff a bit more. But I felt like for the first episode, it was more important to get kind of that general overview. Like obviously, like we've been going on for a while. We could go on for – another two hours just about the tech. Uh, and so, Scott, I may tap on your shoulder one day and say,
1: "Hey, how about we go in and finish what we started?" Oh, perfectly fine. And I hope I didn't stretch your show out too long here. I mean, oh no, I, I'm, I'm
0: I'm fine with it. I, Tari's the one who's you know she's the one who's <laughs> yelling at me. Yeah,
1: she's ready to go home. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got a lot to say about the series, as you can tell. I've I've been an open wheel racing fan my whole life. I love IndyCar, um, Formula One a little mm-hmm. bit less than IndyCar, but um, I'm still a big fan, as you can tell. And mm-hmm. it's just it's all fascinating to me. I could talk for hours about this stuff. I've really could. And, and I think you and I just have kind of a, a good rapport. I think yeah, we, we do. We're able to go back and forth with the stuff pretty good. Uh, we have conversations like this at our desk all the time.
0: Absolutely. That's why I was like, I need to get Scott back into the studio. And then I, I, Michael tweeted me and was saying, hey, where's that Formula One podcast you promised me ages ago? And yeah. I thought... This is the perfect opportunity. Well,
1: Michael, I appreciate it too because I, I love to get into the studio and talk about this stuff. It's fun.
0: Yeah, it was great. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll come back to this in a future episode and we will cover more about the the space age technology that's, that are in these vehicles and how that, uh, again, helps contribute to the amazing
1: performance we see. How about how titanium is not platinum?
0: <laughs> Listen, Scott, <laughs> if we want to go down a list... Of things that have been said on this podcast that turned out to not be a hundred percent accurate, yeah. we're going to be here for a very long time because I've been doing this for more than a thousand episodes, and I make a gaff at least once a show. Oh, perfectly
1: so, fine. I think yeah. it's uh, that's acceptable.
0: Yeah, no, we're we're at we're well under the threshold. We're fine. <laughs> Great. I hope you enjoyed that classic episode of tech stuff from three whole years ago. Not even three yet. But uh yeah also just uh you know shout out to Scott and and love sent through the universe to him. I hope he's doing well. Miss you buddy. And um yeah, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should tackle on future episodes, a lot of people have been reaching out with some great great suggestions and I am working on those ideas. So that will be coming up. But if you would like to be one of those folks reach out to me on Twitter. The, the show's handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.